You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So uh, here's what we do at Equip. We use Ephesians 4.12 as kind of that mindset to equip the saints for the work of the ministry that we want to help give you some stuff that you can go and take and go even further with. Uh, tonight we're actually going to do an Old Testament survey uh, in one kind of session here, and I'll explain why and how we're going to do that, but I want to give you a little bit of heads up because um, we're going to start a class um, here in a couple weeks uh, that Systematic Theology is going to start on January 16th. So two nights from tonight, we're going to tar- uh, start Systematic Theology. And what that means is, that if that sounds scary, don't let it be scary. It basically means this. The Bible's a big book, a lot of topics and themes with it. And so what uh, it does is it kind of puts some of these themes into a systematic approach and pulls the stuff together to say, let's talk about what does Scripture teach us about the Bible or about the Holy Spirit, about sin, and uses those things in a systematic way and helps us see a big picture of it. Uh, we know the study of God is the essential discipline to get accurate during our lifetimes. So Systematic Theology 1 will cover significant tenets of biblical doctrine. I'll give you these. I made my boys learn these when they were like three years old. It was precious, okay? Um, bibliology, theology, anthropology, harmatology, and Christology. They'd always like, anthropology, Christology. You know, I say, what's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Pneumatology. And now I ask them, they don't remember, so i gotta, I got to step it up. Uh, bibliology is what does the Bible say about, guess what? The Bible, and, and that's kind of important. You think, well, what we know. You can't come up with any of these other doctrines unless you at least figure out what Scripture is, right? Theology, the study of God. Anthropology, the study of man. And harmatology, the, the study of what sin does and, and the separation that takes place there. And Christology. And so we'll do that uh, come the spring. There'll be kind of a, a different class we're going to do in the summertime. Then in the fall, we're going to take up session number two and look at some other stuff. So I'm, I'm very, very excited for that. Uh, just as a reminder, though, there's two tracks for this class. Uh, the first one is what's called the seminary track. We'll pursue your uh, Master of Divinity degree and sign up online at Entrust.Institute. Uh, we're doing this partnership with North Greenville that someone can get a fully accredited Master of Divinity um, program through us, connect with North Greenville. So there actually will be some folks here, uh, part of our church family, that are working towards that degree. There will be some people who are working on their master's degree at North Greenville that don't aren't part of Rocky Creek that might be in this equip class with us and y'all just be nice to them okay but if, if you see them they're, they're getting degree credit for it and you go huh i'm not getting the, the degree credit does that mean i can come absolutely because uh, there's this, what we call the equip track which is pursue further theological education and formation that's why you're here tonight you're going i don't want a degree i just want to know more about god's word that's awesome you know why because that's just free okay you come in you get your worksheet every, every night and we're going to go through it and you're going to get the same stuff the difference is going to be this We're all going to be learning the same stuff together, but those who are pursuing a master's degree, they're going to be reading a lot of books and writing a lot of papers outside of this stuff, okay? So the same type of learning we'll have together, but they're going to be doing some other stuff on that. Uh, If you want to purchase books to go deeper, uh, if you're one of those bookworms, the textbooks we will use, uh, the first one is called Theology of the Church, which is edited by Danny Aiken. He's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary out in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And then R.C. Sproul's uh, Everyone's a Theologian. Those two books is what we're going to be looking at. And so I will give in two weeks. I'll say, hey, this is what these seminary folks are reading. And you can just say, give me the cliff notes. That's what I'll do in here, okay? But if you're someone that likes, oh, I'd love to go deeper. I would love to read that stuff. Those are two great volumes that we'll be going through together. Does that make sense? Any questions on that before we jump in? Y'all were so kind. Okay. Um, 
So the reason that what I want to do is, since we're starting in two weeks, I thought, what would be a good two-week kind of start up this year? So before we go systematic theology, I want to go narrative theology, if that makes sense. Okay, the, the Bible speaks in a narrative. So tonight I want to teach, uh, in the next 40 minutes, I want to teach you the narrative of the Old Testament. I'm going to give you the whole picture of the Old Testament. I know that you know certain stories and certain verses, but we're going to look at the whole Old Testament tonight. Next week we're going to look at the whole New Testament and you're going to be able to tell anybody that you know, I know the whole Bible all forwards and backwards, okay? So we're going to do Old Testament tonight, New Testament next week, and then two weeks we start systematic theology. So as we start this, the, the reason we want to do this from time to time is because the Bible is not a disconnected series of self, self-help tales. We typically will tell the Bible about, well, here's the story of David and Goliath. Here's the story of Jonah and the fish. Here's the story of Peter and the boat, right? And it's a, a bunch of... Be like these people, don't be like these people. And that that can be good, but that's really not the point. The Bible is a unified book. In fact, uh, God's Word, if we want to think through one thing that it really does, it outlines God's work to redeem God's people. Does that make sense? One narrative, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 1,189 chapters, all, all that kind of fun stuff, right? All these things, but yet it's one narrative of God's Word outlining God's work to redeem God's people. That is Genesis through Revelation, the main uh, story of it. So uh, to summarize the Bible's narrative, remember these four words, okay? Creation, corruption, crucifixion, and commission, okay? So uh, those four words can be easy for you to remember, and if you can remember them, you kind of can get a big picture of what the Bible is trying to teach. Um, Creation, and corruption, uh, we're going to look at tonight because these are things that are in the Old Testament, okay? And then if we look at crucifixion and commission, we're going to look at those two next week that are kind of New Testament stuff. So if you get those four words, creation, corruption, crucifixion, commission, you'll get down with it. So with that, let's start here in creation and start. uh, I want us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 to do that. And you say, that's not the front of the book. You're exactly right. Um, But this is a major pivotal section in the scripture where things are changing. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has led the people to the promised land. They're getting near to walking in. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 32, Moses is kind of summarizing some stuff that has taken place uh, that they need to remember. Uh, And it speaks about... In reality, it it kind of outlines a lot of what's going to happen in the Old Testament, at least for the first section of it, for that creation side. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32, it says, For ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Now if we stop there for a second... He's speaking of, okay, there was a day where God did create man. And since then, if you look all throughout, there's been nothing that has taken place as what has taken place since God created. Verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Now, in Deuteronomy, when Moses writes that down, these people have experienced a couple of moments with God that revolved around fire, right? Moses had heard from God, uh, the voice of God from what? A burning bush, right? Um, as the people were walking through the wilderness, there was a, 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 cloud, by na- a cloud by day, a fire by what? 
night, right? They're, they're, the fire is kind of guiding them through. And so he goes, okay, you've heard God speak to you through the midst of the fire as you've heard and you still live. Verse 34, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in where? In Egypt before your eyes. Now he just summarized the whole Exodus account and then leading forward. Do you remember that you were... You were enslaved to this Egyptian pharaoh, and God rescued you from a mighty, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt... With his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God has given you for all time. Now, while there's, there's a great summation in that paragraph does where he says, God is the creator. Sin has caused you to get in some pretty bad situations, and yet God has continued to rescue you with power and distinguish you among all the other peoples of the earth that if you belong to God, there is a, should be a difference about you. And in this passage, we really see laid out for us kind of the, fourth, the first section of of scripture about God creating a people, loving a people, them continuing to walk away in rebellion, and yet he continued to care for them. So let's go through just a couple of bullet points to get that narrative uh, section for us. As we look at that first key word, creation, we know this, that through scripture teaches that all things were made by God and what? For God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1 16 said he made all things and all things were made for him. By God and for God. All of creation was supposed to meant intended to reflect his glory. Not only were we made by him, we were made for him, for a purpose, to follow him throughout all things. Unfortunately, we were not able to do that as well. But when God created the heavens and the earth, he created a perfect world, a uh, garden in which he placed some people named Adam and Eve. And he, in this place, it is a beautiful section of, to think that, while we typically think of the one tree he said, do not eat from, have you ever thought about the multiple trees? He said, enjoy Here's all the wonderful things you can enjoy in this life. All these things were made by God, but also for God. That included Adam and Eve. If you think throughout Scripture, God created the uh, heavens and the earth throughout the first week. On day one, he created light. Day two, he creates sky and water. Day three, he creates land. Day four, he creates sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he creates birds and fish. Day six, he creates everything that goes on the land, including people. The one thing made to reflect his image, to be like him. And yet, as he gave them this perfect paradise, he gave them one rule and one rule alone. Not to eat from the one tree that he said not to because it would determine that you think that you're in charge. In God's good design, initially, he created a place for his people to enjoy his presence. This is the Garden of Eden that we find. That the ideal situation is God's people enjoying God's presence in God's place. Folks, that is from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22. That's the journey. 
We started there. We will end there by the grace of Jesus, but we're not there now. Make sense? Sin separates us from that, but what Garden of Eden represented was here is God's people living in God's place with God's presence, in, uh, uninhabited, not, not any kind of um, removal from it whatsoever, but sin took that out. But that is the goal. As we think through what took place next was that a fall took place that as God created Adam and Eve, there was a serpent that came in to deceive Adam and Eve and chose, uh, encouraged them, tempted them to walk away from God's presence. Sin entered the world when instead of wanting to be like God, mankind wanted to be God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, the serpent comes in that we know to be Satan, we know to be the devil himself, and he comes to Adam and Eve in God's place when God's presence was not with them at that moment. And he says, are you sure that God said that? You can't eat that? You can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Exaggeration. Eve says, we can't eat it, we can't even touch it. Exaggeration. You know why? Because whenever we feel tempted, we just make our cause so much extreme. And God to be so overbearing. And in this, he says something to them. He says, the reason why you want to eat that, and the reason why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because the moment that you bite from the apple, you'll be like him. In fact, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil was this opportunity to decide what was good and what was evil. That's God's role and God's role alone. Sin is whenever we take that and say, I determine what's good, I determine what's evil, and not listening to God. And so instead of wanting to be like God, they wanted to be God. And so the temptation comes out. Uh, typically, we always think of the temptation as being an apple. The Bible doesn't say it's an apple, right? But we always think that way but really was this mindset of the fact of God saying, you've got to trust me that I make the rules here. And the temptation was the opportunity to take that upon themselves. If you think about it, the fall happened because mankind wanted to take God's place, but concluded with a promise that God would take mankind's place. And while I want you to turn for just a brief moment to Genesis 3, because this sets up the entire narrative of scripture from this point on and in genesis 3 as soon as they have fallen and god begins to dish out the punishments for sin and transgression against him something remarkable takes place as the serpent has been deceived and god comes out walking in the garden and he asks adam a simple question he says where are you obviously god knew where physically adam was it was a statement of where's your heart adam and so as he comes in and they start blaming and, and moving on from that, what you realize this is that God dishes out some punishment. But in verse 15, when he's speaking to the serpent, he's speaking to the devil himself, he says, I will put enmity or I'll put strife between you and the woman. Why not the man? Why you got to make Eve fight the serpent, right? Okay. Um, I will put strife between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The word really is your seed and her seed, which doesn't make sense in the way that we think through how the next generations always come about. It's not a woman's seed. You think about a man's seed, and that just doesn't make sense. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there is a shot that's taken out to say, let me tell you the one that's going to come, come to battle with you. It's going to come from the seed of a woman. 
there's no one going to be born from a seed of a woman. It's always going to come from a seed of a man. In Genesis 3.15, it is saying there's going to come a birth that no man on this earth can ever get the credit for. There's going to come a virgin birth one day, Satan. And no man can get the credit for But let me tell you, the strife that you've started, he's going to come at you. And if you want to even know, like, okay, is this really talking about Jesus? Listen to this next phrase. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Can you ever think of a moment where symbolically, literally, figuratively, whatever, that this, virgin, this, this child that would be of a virgin birth that would grow up to be a child where someone would strike him in the heel? He's on the cross. As the nail goes through his heel to put him upon the cross for our punishment, at that moment, it's a fatal blow for Satan. Satan might strike him at the heel, but in that moment, Jesus is stomping him on the head. And the, and the game changes forever. In Genesis 3.15, it points to this coming offspring that's going to take away and take the punishment for us. If you go to verse 21, what you notice, it says, As God sends the people out, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You don't get garments of skin unless someone dies in your place to cover up your guilt and shame. A fur coat has to come from someone who has passed and in this moment, as they go out in their sin and shame, God says, you will be covered in someone else and their sacrifice. As it continued and Adam and Eve left the garden, things continued to get out of hand. Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and if you think your family has problems, their family had a lot of problems. Sin continued to escalate so bad that it got to the point where God decided that a flood needed to come on the earth to judge the people of this earth. As sin reached a chaotic level, God's wrath reversed the environments and covered the inhabitants. If you think about what takes place at creation, God takes the chaotic substance that is called in Genesis chapter 1, that he's hovering over the waters, seen as chaotic, uncontrollable. There's no uh, form about them. You go out there and you die, and God separates the water and makes land so that people can live. And when sin takes place, what happens? It's a reversal of creation. The waters cover the land. Those that had been given life are now, their life is taken away. And so what happens is that God tells uh, Noah, a guy by the name of Noah, to build an ark and to get uh, uh, a male and a female of every type of animal to get his family on the boat. And in this moment, God's wrath comes upon mankind. Every single person in creation either experiences God's wrath or is covered and something else takes the place for it. In this case, that timber, if you will, that wood that puts the boat together is absorbing the wrath of God so that the people on the other side can be safe. It's a picture of another time where there might be someone else on another piece of wood that would take the punishment for our sins and stand in our place. It says, as the rains come against them, here is God saying that there, he takes sin seriously and that the wages of sin is death. God's wrath came upon every person or a vessel meant to protect those marked by faith. Those are the two options. They've been the two options from the beginning, the same two options today. God's just and deserving wrath will come upon every single person or some vessel, some person, some thing will protect those marked by faith in that promise and will absorb the wrath of God and they will not have to endure it on their own. As the flood subsides and Noah and his family begins to start out on this, they realize something that even the most noble, righteous man on this earth is prone to wonder. Uh, after he gets off the boat, 
He drinks a little bit too much. He runs around without his clothes on, really upsets his family. They would, they would go get a counselor, but there were no counselors left. A lot of dysfunction, a lot of issues, a lot of stuff going on. Um, and then all of a sudden the people decide they're going to build a tower, right? They're going to build this tower and they're going to make their way to God. And then all of a sudden God separates those people and he starts out with a guy by the name of Abraham and makes a covenant with him. With nations scattered after Babel, God blessed Abraham so that someone from his family would bless and reunite all peoples. So the people he just scattered at Babel, then all of a sudden in Genesis chapter 12, he gathers together this guy by the name of Abram and says, I'm going to bless you so that your family will bless all the nations of the earth. You mean the nations you just scattered? Yeah, the nations I scattered now, but they're going to come back. And because they're different, it's going to be something more beautiful because we're going to bring them back together. Someone from your family is going to bring them back, reunite all peoples one day. And Abraham uh, believed God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says it, and God gave him righteousness for it. God took unrighteous Abram and, and credited him righteousness on the basis of his faith, not his works. If you know Abraham's story, you realize this. Abraham was not deserving of anything other than a swift kick in the pants, right? There's not a whole lot good about Father Abraham. And in Genesis 15, when God says, Abraham, I want you to look out at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? And he says, no, I can't count them. He goes, My descend your descendants, your spiritual descendants, are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed God, and God gave him righteousness. Not because he was righteous. Faith in the coming promise of Messiah gave him righteousness. He said that there was going to be a, uh, someone to come and minister to all the families of the earth one day. And Abraham said, but I don't even have a son. So God gave him a son named Isaac. And that son, Isaac, came at a very later point in his life. If, if Isaac could go up on the mountain on his own, guarantee this. He could have gotten away from his 120-year-old uh, daddy, okay, if he wanted to. But he surrendered himself. He said, okay, I trust you. And Abraham's words to the people who left him said this. He goes, me and the boy are going to go up there, and we're going to sacrifice, and we're going to come back. We? How, how do you say we? Because Abraham knew that God either would provide a sacrifice or God was powerful enough to raise the dead. That's where Abraham's faith had gotten to at that point. This is the covenant that God sends with Abraham onto Isaac and then onto Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and Jacob's name eventually turns into Israel. And out of those 12 sons, there is one son named Joseph, who is his favorite son, who likes to let everybody know that he is the favorite son. And one day the other brothers decide, we are tired of listening to your just braggadocious ways. And they decide to take care of him. And what takes place is Joseph is beaten and thrown into slavery and goes into Egypt. And through a miraculous series of events, Joseph, Joseph accepted his role to suffer unfairly for the redemption of those undeserving. Think about that. Joseph was wrongfully beaten and imprisoned by his brothers, his kinsmen, the Jewish nation, if you will, are his brothers at this time. And what do they do? Beat him, abuse him, throw him into custody of someone else. He goes into this foreign nation. He does what is right. He does not sin. Even when a woman named Potiphar's wife comes upon him, he has the opportunity to sin. He stays innocent. And in his innocence and obedience, he has to suffer because of it. He did no wrong. And yet he's thrown in jail. He's uh, beaten. He's had all these kind of situations happen. And yet, 
All along the way, Joseph moves into a place of position of authority so that he sees that a time of famine is coming. And God allows him to see this picture, and he helps Pharaoh prepare for a famine that is the hit. That one day, guess what? His own family is going to need to be able to find their way out. And their family comes to see Joseph one day because he's the only person who has food left. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. And through a series of events, Joseph presents himself to them. And while he has every opportunity to kill them, he shows them grace. He allows them a place to live. He gives them acceptance and love through this. God brought the nation of Israel, and he placed them in the greatest nation on earth to reveal himself to them. What takes place when Joseph welcomes Jacob, his father, Jacob slash Israel, and the 12 sons of Israel that would turn into the 12 tribes of Israel? Israel moves into Egypt to fulfill a promise that God has started in the early days. All nations will know me. And where does he start? The most powerful nation in the world at that time. In the early days, the nation is very uh, accepting and loving of the, the nation of Israel. But over time, new Pharaoh, new times, they begin to get intimidated by them. And so an exodus must take place. God's people are mistreated unfairly, put into slavery. And through the plagues, eventually God humiliated every God the Egyptians revered. God sends a man by the name of Moses to go out to let his people go. And Pharaoh will not let them go. And so through a series of these plagues, through each one, just so you know, when the sky goes dark, we say, okay, so God made it dark. What you don't understand was that the Egyptians worshiped the sun, and God punched the sun in the mouth. Uh, the people worshiped cows, and God hit the cows where it hurt. They, they worshiped the Nile River. He turned it to blood. All of their gods, he starts aiming at and taking them down one by one by one by one. Finally, there is a final plague that happens, which is called the Passover plague. The sacrificial lamb took God's wrath for the people so they could finally be free. Knowing that God's wrath would come upon every single household, justly, deservingly so, God sends these people out, and a sacrificial lamb comes in and takes their place so that if the sacrificial lamb, bones not broken, completely consumed, and applied to the doorpost of the house, God would pass over that house because one had already paid the penalty for those people and they could go free. This sacrificial lamb that was given for the people had not committed the sin, but took the place so that the people could go free. And in this last Passover plague, God finally gets the attention of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I'm done. And he lets the people go, and they begin their journey on the way to the promised land. On the way to the promised land, they are giving a, a selection of commandments. We eventually, we know most about the, the top 10 that we know about, but eventually there's 613 that he gives them. Moral laws of how to live, civil laws of how to govern, ceremonial laws of how they should worship in all these different ways. But know this, that God did not provide commandments in order to be redeemed, but because they were redeemed. God did not give the commandments before they left Exodus, uh, before they left Egypt. He did not say, keep these and I'll rescue you. He said, I've rescued you, now keep these. And it's the same way that he gives us commandments today. He doesn't give us commandments today to say, observe these and you're mine. He goes, you're mine, now observe these. Here are the ways to live. Here are the instructions for you to follow. These original, these Ten Commandments, 
uh, as we know in so many different ways. You shall have no other gods. You shall uh, make no idols. Uh, keep God's name holy. Keep God's day holy. Honor your father and mother. No murder. No adultery. No stealing. No lying. No coveting. These are the ways, the horizontal and vertical ways that you are to live under God's rules so that you can experience God's ways. In this, the law showed that no one could keep it perfectly, yet it provided the ideal order the world needed desperately. Could anybody keep the law perfectly besides Jesus? The answer is no. And yet, it was the structure of to say, you want to live in the, the best ideal scenario that you can since you've been kicked out of Eden? Follow these instructions and you can have some type of order. Disobey these and watch chaos come to a culture. Watch it. And so these commandments were given to these people and and while out of all the things that they had seen, surely they're going to keep them, right? And not so well. What we find ourselves is that they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The people's disobedience kept them wandering for years, unable to reach the promised land. A generation passed away in the wilderness because they continued to um, lose faith in God and step away from the commandments. And so besides Joshua and Caleb, the original generation that left Egypt never saw Canaan. But there was Joshua and Caleb and, and the, the next generation of people finally got to see the promised land. And no matter how consistent their rebellion, God maintained his presence on the sacrifice of substitutes. In those 40 years are a series of events that happened of where God had every right to say, I'm done with you people, it's over. And because of a sacrifice, God continued to give them chance after chance after chance. You might even remember this moment where one day they had been complaining about what they did not have in numbers. And all of a sudden, one day, uh, God sent fiery snakes upon the people that if you got bit, the venom would kill you very, very quickly. And the people said, God, we're sorry, what should we do? And, and he said, Moses, why don't you take uh, a symbol of what's uh, killing them? Put it up high on a pole so that everybody can see it. So that if you get bit by it, you run to the, the, the symbol of what that uh, punishment is. And you're running in faith because you have to trust that that's the only thing that can save you. And that's why it makes sense that before Jesus ever said, For God so loved the world, in, J in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And, and so... As we have been bit with the sting of sin and our condemnation, our punishment is the cross of Jesus Christ. The symbol of that goes up high for anyone who is going to be spared and rescued and redeemed is that we put all of our hope and faith in this all on the way. Jesus is coming. Just throwing it out there. All these moments of substitutes just remind us of, of that God is coming. Eventually, though, the, 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 the section in the Old Testament takes place where after creation and God's people and God's land getting them back together... Corruption continues to increase. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse uh, 1 through 9, uh, is where I would say is kind of a hinge point in the Old Testament. And I'll, I'll read this to you, and you can turn there if you'd like. But uh, really quick, he says, When Samuel became old, so there, there are people living in the land now, he made his sons judges over Israel. And, and so here this is, at this time, between Joshua, who led the people into Israel and whatnot, there's this group of judges that take place that are trying to lead but there is something that's significant that takes place that changes the entirety of the Bible. To, to understand that, when you get to Canaan or the name of the promised land, you understand this. 
God led his people to his place to enjoy his presence. See the theme coming back? You go into the promised land, land flowing of milk and honey. You get to have everything that you want. Follow my rules, enjoy my presence, don't have to worry about your enemies, just like before. Surely, people would have learned their lesson at this point. So through the likes of Joshua, they come in and they take the land. And they take the land through power, but they take the land through a unique place of power. Like they go to the Battle of Jericho, right? And if you're going to go march on a major army, uh, typically you put the soldiers in front. And what does Joshua tell? Get the marching band out front. Get the guys who play the trumpet. Y'all walk around the building, you know, for seven days. Then on the last day, we're going to blow our trumpets really loud. And what took place? The walls came crashing down. Why? Why would God do it that way? Because he wanted all the nations to know that it was a different type of God that walked with Israel. This was not a God that fought his battles through the hands of men. It was a God who fought his own battles for him. As Joshua and what was left of Israel walked into Canaan, they were able to enjoy God's presence yet again. The, the all of blessings, though, eventually got replaced by the danger of entitlement. Eventually, when they first walked in, it's like, oh, we finally get our own place. Then eventually they go, yeah, we got our own place. And they got comfortable. They got stagnant. And all the stuff that had kicked them out of the garden at first now brought them back into that place again. And the cycle of sin took place that we see through the book of Judges that leads us to 1 Samuel where God's people got stuck in a cycle of sin with a constant need for a redeemer. Through the book of Judges, you, you find that these people, where there was no governing spiritual leaders, that the people would continually get in trouble. So God's people, they got stuck in a cycle of sin with a constant need, always need a redeemer. You know some of the redeemers like Deborah, Samson, Gideon, um, these different people that come alongside. It's the same story over and over and over again that the people of God began to practice and follow and worship other gods of neighboring nations. They began to even sacrifice their own children to appease certain gods to give them prosperity. And in that culture, as they would give these children over to those gods, God would send out this cycle that looked like this. That as the people would sin, then eventually what would take place is that there would be suffering that God would bring to the hand of a neighboring nation. And in their suffering, they would begin to have supplication, pray, uh, uh, pray and ask God to relieve them. And God would send them salvation through the hand of a judge who would rescue them, redeem them. And guess what? The cycle started all over again. They got caught just in a trap over and over and over again. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, a culture deteriorates thoroughly. This is the, the, the concept of judges. Uh, in, in the book of Judges, in, in certain places, it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is what happens to a culture when they walk away from the truths of God's word and the dysfunction that it leads to. This is what it comes down to. And so the people of God, are they're, they're kind of out of sorts. They're in a bad spot. And, and then the rejection that happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is so very important. Because discontent with the kingship of God, the people preferred to be like neighboring nations and follow flawed kings. In 1 Samuel 8, what takes place? Samuel is old. The judges are failing. Samuel's sons are ungodly and train wrecks. And the people come to Samuel. And this is what they say in verse 5. Behold, you are old. That's always an encouraging way to start the conversation, right? Okay. Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, listen to this, like all the nations. We want to be like all of our neighbors. 
And he goes, all right, let me ask you a question. Did the neighboring nation's God deliver them out of slavery? Did, did the neighboring nation's God feed you when you were starving? Did, did the neighboring nation's God win that battle for you? No, that, that, was, that was me. And, and so Samuel pushes back. Verse 6 says, The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected who? Me. God says, They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They rejected me. They, they don't want me to be king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only then you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. The next paragraph, he says, all right, guys, we're going to give you a king. And guess what? Let me tell you what he's going to be like. And they look for a type of king. The, their, their idea of a king is this. We want someone tall, Wealthy and handsome. That's who we need to lead our people. And God said, any other characteristic? Like, no, that's good. That's all we want. We want, we want. we want a really tall guy. So they find the tallest guy they can find in Israel. His name is Saul. He is exactly the king that they want and the exact king they do not need. Because they put their strength in external. They put their strength in what they think will put fear and intimidation everywhere. And whatever the people relied on other than God, he would use that exact thing to humble them. If you remember, if Saul was chosen because he was tall to give the people courage, that worked until somebody got taller and came into their nation. Right? His name was Goliath. Put the strength in the tall guy. Have you seen that big tall drink of water, right? It's remarkable. They literally said, we want a tall guy. And God says, okay, put all your hope and strength there. Okay, great. And then all of a sudden, Goliath walks in. And where is Saul? Cowering in his boots, hidden in a tent, unwilling to fight the man, taunting his God. Put their strength there. And so through this moment where God has uh, humbled the people, there is someone that comes up who is not afraid of that giant. You know why? Because he fears someone a lot bigger than Goliath. He fears God. And, and so through this, there is a kingdom that is established that while they eventually went to Saul, a new king comes into place. His name is David. He's a man after God's own heart. And there are some brilliant, wonderful things that he does that even his son Solomon will eventually do. But no matter how impressive the feats, every king also betrayed disappointing frailties. If you think about it, for all the, the amazing things that David and Solomon particularly did, for every Goliath, there's always a Bathsheba, right? For every mountaintop, there's always a valley. And there's moments of brilliance, and there's moments of, look at this, this is our guy, and then, oh no, what are you doing? It takes place over and over and over again. The bravery that David showed on the battlefield to take down Goliath, it started at this place. My God is bigger than you, and you're taunting my God, so the battle is not mine, the battle is God's. He's about to take you out, and this is what he says so that the nations may know there's a God in Israel. This is the point of the Old Testament, so that even the Philistines would know the truth about it. So for this beautiful moment where David is there, all of a sudden when pride comes in, David thinks he's the end all, the be all through it. And so through this, David cannot carry on what God had expected for him, 
and neither can Solomon for all of Solomon's dysfunction and issues that will come about, even at one point being the most wisest man in the world, then becoming the most dumbest wisest man that's ever lived in the world, you find that God promised that one from David's lineage would become king and reign forever. God says to David, David, you, you won't be able to build this temple because you've got issues, and your son won't be able to stay in this position forever because he's going to have issues. But someone's going to come from your family who's going to reign forever. Pointing to a coming king who would come from the line of David. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, there is someone named Jesus who comes straight from that line. Who will not reign on a place like we would think of a term limit of four years, but reign on for all the people forever. So after David and leading to Solomon, eventually a great division arises, unfortunately. The nation descended into chaos as God's people tweaked religious devotion to satisfy personal desires. After Solomon's rule, the nation gets literally put almost in a civil war, if you will. Judah over here, Israel over there. And the next few books of the Bible follow king after king. And the culture continues to descend into chaos as people find it appropriate to follow God if it helps out their agenda. But if it, folk, if it infringes upon their rights, they bail. And this is what takes place. And so through these times, you have moments of kings like, kings like Josiah who were great and, and did some really godly things. And then you've got train wrecks um, that, that are like uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And, and you think of Hezekiah, these different ones that come along and do horrible things. And so God sends prophets, guys by the name of Elijah, right? To call out and say, stop limping between two positions. Either God's God or he's not. Find a way, choose a path. And and God does incredible things through prophets like Elijah, prophets like Jeremiah, prophets like Isaiah, calling the people to repentance. But eventually the remaining prophets warn God's people to return to God's ways or experience God's punishment. That is the message of Elijah. That is the message of Isaiah. That is the message of so many of the Old Testament prophets. Wake up before it's too late. God will not allow us to run from him forever. Wake up, call, the t clock is ticking. You need to get right now. And, and without these prophets, stand in the streets calling out for people. But eventually, God's people do not listen. And it leads to a time of exile. The unthinkable takes place. Once again, think about it. God's people, God's presence, God's place. You disobey, God's people get out of God's presence, out of God's place. In this exile, God allowed pagan nations to defeat his own because even if his enemies were worse, God's people knew better. It, Jeremiah could not understand. Habakkuk could not understand. God, I know that we're messed up, but have you seen these people over here? Have you seen Babylon? Have you seen Assyria? You know how sinful they are? Yeah, but you know better. But they're doing horrible things. Yeah, but you have my law. You have my presence. You know better. They're acting like the world because they don't know me. You know me. You should be different. And so the, the prophets who could not believe that God would actually allow this to take place is exactly the reason why. Because they knew better. And so a pagan enemies come and march upon the temple and desecrate it and take the people captive and send them out. And then all of a sudden you have people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who have to learn how to live for God in a nation that does not follow God. They get what they've asked for for the last many, many years. 
The exile forced God's people to learn how to follow him in a land that did not. And through this time, a refining takes place of God's people, where so many of them follow the line of Babylon and get sucked into that culture. And some say, you tell me I can't pray to my God and I'm going to open up the windows and tell you, yes, I will. You tell me i got to worship the king, and I'm going to stand right where I need to and continue to follow mine. You can put us in the fire, you can put us in front of lions, but we fear our God more than we fear you, king. And through that, they learn how, and there is a remnant that stays faithful. And at a certain point in time, the return takes place. After a lifetime in exile, a remnant returns to rebuild what sin had broken. Through a lifetime in exile, generations have passed. The prophet Jeremiah said that they would get 70 plus years in that land. After almost a lifetime in exile, a remnant returns to rebuild what sin had broken. Can you imagine, for those that could still remember the glorious nature of Solomon's temple, walking in to see ashes, seeing dust, seeing what was faint there, seeing there is no altar, there is no sac, there, there's nothing there. So men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah lead the charge and they say first and foremost we're going to set the temple back up and we're going to worship God in this place. And it's a far cry from what it used to be. But it's at least their hearts there. Next they build a wall up to make sure they can keep the people of God safe and the enemies out and they go forward. And while the people wondered if God had abandoned them, prophets urged them to wait for the help on his way. In this time as the people began to think and pray, has God forgotten about us? The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, says it this way. There's one who's coming who's going to set everything right. And you need to get ready because he's on his way. Prepare the way, clear the path, get everything straight. Forerunner's going to come, and then all of a sudden God is going to be presented in his temple. And at that point, everything changes. And the message of the Old Testament honestly ends with the final page of Malachi, which I have shown this group at numerous times, that is represented by this blank page in your Bible. I've written on mine where it says it this way, 400 years of silence. Because after Malachi, there is no voice from God for 400 years that says that God still thinks of his people. And as Malachi urges the people and the last prophets continue to point forward there are people who begin to think god will not speak to us again god will not open his mouth again god has given up on us but 400 years later on a christmas night a group of shepherds hear this wonderful word glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased in this city of david today your savior has been born and next week we'll talk about him father we thank you for the message of the Old Testament about how it is a path of God's people enjoying God's presence and God's place and yet how sin can remove it from us. Help us to understand this narrative theology of what you're doing and how it points to Jesus. And as we look next week, we would see the glorious uh, nature of the New Testament and how it propels us forward to be your church. In the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.